I had that familiar conviction that life was beginning over again with the summer. This is a quote from The Great Gatsby. We celebrated Fourth of July at Lake Lemon with my family and some old friends of ours last weekend, and there's a big chalkboard in the kitchen that my sister-in-law and one of the friend's wives that was there had written up on the board. And it seemed to be a perfect encapsulation of what we were there to do that weekend. We were there to enjoy the summertime. The beautiful weather, be out on the water, old friends gathered together to enjoy one another's company. I started last time with Dickens, or this time with Fitzgerald, and I won't apologize for the continuing, continuing literary references because there are a lot of good writers out there who think thoughtfully and provide a lens for us to experience learning and life through something deeper and better sometimes than what we can come with on our own. Gatsby is a book that Victoria and I try to read every year. We read it last year on vacation in Florida, and we're getting ready to pick it up again this year. It is a, a classic American read, and it, it allows us to, to experience a breadth of emotion that, especially if you read it continually, it becomes very rich in the, the kind of tapestry of your life. What Gatsby is, though, in so many ways, is a classic study in perception and reality. Those of you familiar with the story, it's an American classic set in the jazz age. Jay Gatsby, born a poor man in Minnesota, falls in love with a girl in Kentucky that he can't have, goes off to war, comes home, and has everything in his power to get this girl back. He essentially cons everyone into believing that he's some glamorous millionaire calling them old sport this kind of business. But in the end, I'm sorry for the spoilers if you haven't read it or seen the movie or somehow avoided this. And if you have, you're just like my father and you guys should probably be friends. Um, but in the end, Gatsby is left with nothing. He's a nobody. And this is a quintessential American underdog story, which is one of the reasons we like it. But what it really drives at is that Gatsby's fundamental perception of himself and the reality of who he was didn't line up. It's this idea of perception and reality that leads us into today's passage. So if you'll stand with me, we're going to read Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot, turn and attack you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks indeed. And just to recap, like Chase did last week so eloquently, we are still in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a section of Jesus' life where he takes a handful of his followers up on a hillside, and while they're there, he addresses a variety of things. In chapter 5, we've seen he addresses their condition and their character as Christians in the Beatitudes. He addresses their function on this earth. We serve as salt and light. He addresses their relationship with the law. Chapter 6, he transitions to address their fellowship with the Father and their personal life on earth. How do you pray? How do you handle your, your almsgiving? And in chapter 7, Jesus changes gears again here to address their relationships with others, particularly with Christians. So let's look at this idea of don't judge first in the context of perception and reality. 
Here we start with one of the most misused and misunderstood passages in all of Scripture. That very fact should make plain to us that our perception about judgment is wrong. When I was a junior in high school, we studied the book of Matthew. We went through one of the Gospels every year. And I promise you, when we got to this section, everybody in my class ran out of there when the bell rang in the passing period with a bit of ammunition to tell their friends, don't judge, to tell their parents, get off my back, to tell their boss, you don't know me, right? Everybody, everybody has an experience with this, I would imagine. Christians and non-Christians alike use this passage predominantly out of context. You even see it in culture in places like message boards and blogs, people use it to defend their lifestyle or to fend off critiques. But, in practice, we judge all the time, right? Engineers make judgments with statistics and math. I like to think that we do it best. <laughs> Teachers make judgments with report cards, grades. There's a standard there that, that our work is being judged by. Artists and musicians, a little bit more nebulous, hard to get your hands around, but there's still a standard there. We call it beauty. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, getting followers, getting likes, getting retweets. All this is us looking for affirmation, which is merely judgment. We're wanting someone to come out there in the cosmic void and say, I agree with you, or I challenge you on this. We're seeking other people's judgment constantly. We seek judgment as consumers. We identify with a particular brand. We think that that brand says something about us, or rather, that brand says something that I believe in, and so I want to be a part of it. You know, I drive a Honda. I like to think that that makes people think that I'm a reasonably value conscientious and, and a smart person. My, <laughs> you know, my 16-year-old sister-in-law drove my 2000 Honda Civic and said, this is the best driving car I've ever been in, man. And I promise you, no one thinks that a 15-year-old Honda Civic, like, that's what it says. This is a, this is a finely tuned sports automobile, right? But we, we look for those kind of judgments all the time. We want, to, we want to have something say something about us, or we want to be able to say something about something else, right? And yet our natural perception of this passage is the opposite. We use it to justify sin in our lives. We use it as a crutch and a shield. We use it as a crutch as a way to license and hide in our sin. And we use it as a shield to ignore what the Scripture says and to judge away neglecting to remember that our measure will be used against us. We use it to support anarchy, lawlessness, and a host of other moral failings. The list goes on. Leo Tolstoy, pretty smart guy, wrote War and Peace, among other things, obviously has something to say in the kind of cosmic discussion on Earth, thought that the only possible interpretation of this passage was that any system of justice then was inappropriate. So clearly, our perception of judgment is wrong, or at best, confused. We don't know what to do with this passage very well. We're torn. We can't help but judge, but so many times we try to avoid it. So, what then is Jesus trying to say here? What is the point he is making? The good news is that the reality of this passage is found in Christ. The reality here, Jesus isn't saying, don't judge ever. This would be neither practical nor scriptural. Judgment is a good thing in so many ways. The natural laws we have on this earth, the courts, the justice system, we've all probably had an experience with that first speeding ticket, right? Scriptural references, church discipline in Matthew 18, Jesus is never one to shy away from calling a spade a spade. You know, the woman at the well, he calls her out on her sin. Criticism is in itself an example of judgment and, and something that is good in our lives. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones writes in one of the critiques on this passage that true criticism is an excellent thing. This is probably something that we've all had experience with either recently or a few years ago, depending on when you graduated. But when you get a minute to sit down with a faculty member for a paper you're working on and go into his office and, and give him midway through, this is what I'm working on, and he takes it, turns it around on his desk, and knowing so much more than we possibly could at this stage in our life or maybe even ever, and says, I think where you're going with this is great, but we can make these improvements. No one walks out of that office thinking, oh gosh, what a failure I am. But rather, you walk out of there with your head held high, encouraged that I can do this. I've got someone on my side who gets this more than I do, and he wants to help me succeed. Criticism, as a form of judgment, is a good thing. Remember, though, here Jesus is addressing our relationships. So we're not, we don't want to pull this out of context and look at judgment as a whole, but rather, how do we address judgment in our relationships? The reality here, Christ is saying, is don't be overly critical, particularly, again, in relationships. The old saying, if you don't have anything nice to say, come and whisper next to me. Now, that wasn't how our mothers taught it to it, was it? We ought to listen more to our mothers. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Jesus is getting at uh, what's called a, what's the word? An overly critical spirit, which is censoriousness. He's driving at our hearts are in the wrong place there. Look further at verse 2. He makes this very clear that we should be careful how we express our judgment because the measure that we use will be measured against us. The reality here, Jesus is not, he is saying, excuse me, don't condemn. He's saying this because final judgment is reserved for the Lord. Who are we to presume guilt? Like Nathan just talked about, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We ought not to to place ourselves on that judgment throne and presume guilt of anyone. The reality here is that Jesus is saying, don't have a judgmental spirit. Like all the Sermon on the Mount, he's driving at a heart issue. And this kind of taxonomy of discussion, this word taxonomy, a, a higher order of things, right? The easiest thing so many times to talk about is other people. It's easy to get around and grouse about people you've been in contact with or what's been going on. Next, a little bit higher up is events, things that have been happening. The hardest thing to talk about is ideas because it requires a level of engagement and, and thoughtfulness that, that's, easy, or that's difficult to, to plug into sometimes. It's difficult to get out of bed and, and want to talk about ideas before Victoria's had her coffee. I experience that every day. Matt, I just get out, <laughs> right? So much of our lazy discussion is about perceived faults that we find in others. It's such a natural a comfy pair of slippers to put on and just, just gripe about people. We especially love to be able to find fault in someone else because it's much easier to diagnose, analyze, and fix someone else. You can armchair quarterback that all day. There's no work involved on my part to change them. But I've got all the answers, right? On Wednesday nights at Mike and Zoe's house, we're going through the gospel-centered life. And a few weeks ago, we were looking at how Christ informs our identity in, in the greater context of our life. And one of, the, one of the columns that was addressing some challenges that people come across is this idea of being a competent analyst of others' weaknesses. And I checked that one immediately. That's something that I really struggle with. Uh, I was at Starbucks this morning getting a cup of coffee, and there was this elderly woman in front of me, because I'm a lazy American and went through the drive-thru, who, who was getting three drinks of some form or fashion. The guy gave her this big tray of frappuccinos, and I'm thinking to myself, come on. 
Like, this is what you're going to order. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you should get a real cup of coffee kind of a thing. And, and, and then, like, she, she looked back at the guy in the drive through window and was confused, like, this isn't what I ordered. And the guy's explaining to her, no, frappuccinos always have ice. And, and then so he goes back and gets her three cappuccinos, I think, and still wasn't what he wanted. And I was just, like, it took 20 minutes to get a latte. And I, like, I've been studying this for two weeks, and I was still just gosh, this lady is the worst. Like, literally, like, getting, driving over here to talk to you guys about this today, and I'm so far afield because this is so much of our nature. This is a big struggle for me. I come from a family of judges, honestly. We have a lot of traditions and a lot of ways that we do things. And so it can be very difficult to unplug from that and recognize that there are perfectly acceptable ways of doing things that don't have to do with my family and that the way we do things is necessarily not the right way. And more importantly, it isn't my job to speak into how those people are doing these little things like ordering coffee in the morning that mean nothing. You see the difference there? Jesus isn't saying don't ever make a judgment, but he is saying don't be hypercritical. I see this very clearly that our perception is so often flawed here because the reality is that my identity isn't in my family or our traditions. And the reality is that our identity isn't in our ability to be right or to find fault. The reality is that Christ is our identity. He has spared us from judgment, and we ought to humbly come before him and say thanks. Let's now look at the speck in the log. Jesus leads us to another one of the most recognizable passages in Scripture, this idea of the speck in the log. Before we jump into this, though, let's talk for a minute about tone and sarcasm. When I was a boy, I had a twin brother and a younger brother, and I, I still have them. And I have, I have my dad. And so my mother was horribly outnumbered. Even our chubby Labrador was a boy. And so it was, it was really five against one. And, and God love her, she managed to raise all of us. Um, but mom would always tell us, men always have tone and women don't. And I, I don't know if this was just a way of her to kind of corral us into being obedient or if there's some bigger truth there. But I've definitely learned to be true with my wife. I always have tone when I'm talking to her. She was in Chicago the other weekend, and I got an email from AT&T saying, Victoria's getting close to her data usage. And I had been asleep for a nap because she was gone, and I could take a nap when she's not there. And, and I see this email, and I'm thinking, okay, well, I've got to deal with this. Like, that's, that's my personality. See a problem, we can fix it. So I called her, kind of half asleep, say, hey, she's got an email from AT&T. You're almost over your data limit. And she's... She, she says, Matt, you have to stop calling me this way. Like, I thought someone had died. <laughs> Your tone was completely wrong. Like, pick a better way to present this to me. Just forward the emails. Stop using your words, okay? <laughs> Men always have tone, right? Now, it's unclear to me if this, uh, this kind of natural law that my mother has supposed applies to Jesus. He was both holy man and holy God. So, unclear. But regardless, Jesus lays the tone on pretty thick here with this uh, passage of, of Scripture. Verse 3, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, instead of addressing our perception about judgment here, Jesus shifts gears to address our perception about our heart and our motives in judgment. We tell ourselves constantly as we go on judging others that we just want the truth or we just want what's best for them or we just want to help them or some other rationalization. This hurts me more than hurts you kind of a thing. 
Jesus nips this kind of thinking in the bud quickly, though. First, he uses the term hypocrite. Remember, he's talking to his disciples here. He's calling them out on the carpet saying, you're wrong. Jesus is indicating that our motives are wrong in judgment, plain and simple. The reality, as Christ tells us, is that if we really cared about the sin in their life, we would first check ourselves. But because we don't do that, clearly we've missed the boat. The reality is that we are more interested in judging others' sins and condemning them than we are in truly helping. And sadly, because of this, we are ineffectual helpers. The very thing we want to do, we cannot. We can't see clearly to help. Think about this idea of the blind leading the blind. And then another step further, a blind optometrist. How could he possibly help anyone see? But so often, that's, that's us. We sit down there with the diploma behind our desk as a blind optometrist and say, we're going to get you straightened out, big guy. Here again, Christ turns our perception upside down. So how do we take the log out? I think that should be the next natural question. If we're doing it wrong, how can we get it right? Ironically, it's the same way as we are not to do with others. We can take the log out by being overly critical of our sin, by not hiding in it, by finding community, by being a part of a fight club. You can take the log out effectively by being someone who condemns the sin in your life. Matthew 10, Jesus talks about how he didn't come to bring bring peace, but a sword. Jesus came to violently redeem your life from the pit, to cut the sin that so easily entangles out of your heart, and to pull you back to him. He violently condemns the sin in our life. He wants nothing to do with it, and that should be us. Instead of pushing our condemnation onto other people for their small faults and idiosyncrasies, we ought to be taking that look inward and saying, I want this gone. We can take the log out by being someone who isn't afraid to judge your heart and call a spade a spade. This is a great opportunity to pause for a moment and check our own hearts. If we, through Christ's help and the Spirit's work, can take that log out, truly then we can help our brother. This is the beauty of it. That process of log removal, of course I think we ought to consider renaming the fight clubs to log removal service or something like that. That process humbles us. It can't not. C.S. Lewis talks about experience, that most brutal of teachers. But you learn. My God, do you learn. It's after we endure that process, being humbled, that we can effectively come alongside and help someone take that speck out. You get something stuck in your eye, it's hard to get it out. Victoria made dinner the other night. Jason and Natalie came over and she had cut some jalapenos for the salsa. And... She had this still on her fingers, and before we went to bed, she came to me and she says, Matt, my fingers are still burning. I don't want to take my contacts out. Can you do it for me? And I was, no. No, I cannot do it for you. And I still, like, I tried to fish it out. No luck. She ended up going to bed with burning corneas. And Sweetheart, for that, I apologize. Uh, I didn't know that was part of the marriage contract, but apparently it was. But truly, taking that speck out is delicate. It requires... It requires a humble heart and a contrite spirit to come alongside your friend truly and help them see the fault. A hypercritical spirit doesn't help anyone see anything like that. This is what J.C. Ryle says is Christian charity, being slow to find faults, not being overly critical. It's the embodiment of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's chapter on love. 
Now let's talk about charity for a moment. Charity, from an ontological standpoint, and that is, ontology is the study of things in their true nature, is the God love, the Greek word for agape. I didn't know this until I was going through this study, but 1 Corinthians 13 in the Greek, love is patient, love is kind, love endures all things. The word that Paul is using is, is charity. This is Christian love uniquely. Paul's talking about this set of characteristics is unique to the kind of love that Christians have. Charity is not puffed up. Charity suffers long and is kind and forgives. C.S. Lewis explains in his classic text, The Four Loves, that the natural loves are not self-sufficient. The natural loves are friendship, romance, and affection. These are loves that are all common to us on the earth. The fourth love, though, is charity, is the God love. The analogy that he gives is a garden. You can grow up this beautiful garden, but the only way that anything good happens there is through the gardener tending it. The analogy here that the beauty and the growth in the garden would be the natural loves, but all this is tended by the gardener, who is God. If you leave the tools in the shed, regardless of how beautiful it was when you left it, give it a couple days and a good rain and those weeds will spring up. Someone has to go out there and tend it. And it's Christ Jesus that does this in us. This idea of charity is not merely pitying someone and giving money at Christmas because we feel bad. It is, it's Christ's love inside of us. We need God and his love to effectively pour into others. Believers, here again, beautifully, we see our need to press into Christ. In order to help a brother, we must first humble ourselves and press into Christ. For those of you that don't yet know Christ, take heart. For this is the beauty of the gospel. Christ's restorative work in us to make us like him. He bore judgment for us, dying in our stead, that we might spur one another on to walk with him. We're not stuck in this alone. Like Nathan talked about, we're gathered here together. And that's the beauty of, of what Christ is driving at here, is that no one of us is left to our own devices to try and figure out how to, to rend these things from our heart. Or rather, he's given us a great cloud of witnesses to encourage us on that journey. Finally, Jesus addresses the pigs and the dogs. He concludes this section with a passage that confuses us at first blush. Verse 6, Do not give to dogs what is sacred, and do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Here again, I think, our perception of this passage, how does this tie in? Did Matthew get it out of order? They put this in the wrong place? They copy and paste it wrong in the papyrus? Not the font, but the real paper? And I'll be honest, like in studying this for a week or two, I, I had the same thing. I read those first five verses and thought these things are talking about the same thing. Verse 6, unclear. Uh, spent a lot of time in prayer about it, tried to get a handle on it. Like Chris and I talked about it. I, I don't really understand why this is where it is. And one more time, Jesus reveals the reality and the truth of this. In fact... Verse 6 is vital to the interpretation and the application of this section. What's he saying here? Let's revisit. Don't give to dogs what is sacred. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. The essence of this passage, Jesus is telling us to be discerning. Be discerning. We just spent the last five verses and 20 minutes talking about how our motives and our heart and judging are essentially always wrong. And what does Jesus do in the next breath? Turns around and says, be discerning. This is the beauty of Scripture. Taken as a whole and not a piecemeal out of context, we learn to find balance in Christ. 
it would be, and for some has been, an easy license to leave verse 6 out of the interpretation. This leads to a position that is afraid of judgment, especially in the church. Matthew 18 lines out clearly the expectations for church discipline. But if you leave this ability to be discerning out, you would never get to a place where you would feel comfortable essentially making a judgment about someone. And yet, time and again, we are called to do that very thing as Christians with our brothers. The challenge here is that we struggle with balance so much. We either want to hide an abject fear of judgment or we want to come in guns blazing and judge everyone. We want to judge and not be judged. We never want to get down in the mire and help. And that's where the balance is. The pearl here Jesus is talking about is the truth. It's the gospel. Christ is telling us to be discerning about who we share with and how we teach to them. He delineates between two different groups to say, very practically, know your audience. Communications 101. Jesus says, make sure you know where you're going. There are four different gospel accounts, all four of them telling essentially the same story, but all four of them presenting it in just a little different way for a little different audience. There's a huge scriptural precedent for knowing who you're talking to and how can you appropriately address them. And that's what Jesus is saying here. When you're taking the truth to people, make sure you know, spend time in prayer, spend time in the word to be able to effectively engage them. There are times when the apostles gave up teaching to people. Matthew 10:14 says, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Some hearts are hardened to the gospel. This isn't to say that we don't make every effort to share him with them, but it does mean that, with his help, we are to be discerning about when we might be spinning our wheels. So how do we develop this discerning spirit? Like we've talked about, step one is to press into Christ. Step two is to know your Bible. It's to spend time with him in his word. Victoria and I went to Portland at the end of May. I had a work trip out there, and she got to come with me, which was fun. And the office building that we were meeting in is this kind of bland office park out by the airport. Like there was a university in there, and some big shipping companies had like remote offices. And there was one door, though. Everything had this kind of, you know, the glass window with the name of the company on it. And you walk in, and the receptionist was there. One door didn't have the glass panel. As far as I can tell, I don't even know if they had any natural light in there. There was just a door with a sign on the wall saying, Toyota Sales Force Development. Toyota knew that the guys that they were bringing in there for this training course didn't need to have a nice office. They didn't need to have a view of the lake or the trees or the sky or anything to effectively do their job. These guys weren't in there to sit and wax eloquent about the meaning of life. Rather, they were there to learn a set of skills that that their employer wanted them to know. The analogy here is that we would do well to consider our time in the Word that same way. To, to cast off all the distractions and just be on our knees in front of him in prayer and in his word. If we were to truly pour our hearts into that effort, we might never come across this question of spinning our wheels. The Bible is such an incredible tool. It answers so many questions, meets us where we are. I would venture that should we err on the side of pressing into him more first and always before wondering about being discerning. Does that make sense to you guys? T.S. Eliot has a great line in a poem, In my end is my beginning. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. The opening line in Gatsby is this, Whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, 
Just remember that all the people in this world haven't had the advantages that you've had. Well, I'm fairly confident that Scott Fitzgerald wasn't setting out a gospel exposition here. He makes essentially the right point for us. Except here, our great advantage is the finished work of Christ Jesus, who has saved us from judgment eternally, paid our penalty on the cross, and pulled us back from the pit. We do well to think on this fact often, to remember that he has borne the judgment for us, to let him inform our perceptions and take his identity as our reality, and to press into him, that we might grow in charity and our knowledge of him. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much that you took the judgment for us. Thank you that we have an eternal hope with you. We'll be able to cast off these rags of sin and and shame and, and walk in glory with you eternally. We pray, Lord, that, that you would draw us near, that you would help us lay down our need to be right in the judgmental spirits, that you would humble us, that you would teach us effectively to love like you have loved. Lord, we thank you so much for, for what you've done for us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.